everyone. I'm here with Vaughn Packard. Vaughn, welcome to the Ward family. And Vaughn, where did life begin for you? Where did you grow up? I was born in Boise, Idaho, 20 minutes before my identical twin brother. And we ended up doing almost everything together over life, so it's hard for me to separate him until he got married and I got married. But um, Boise, Idaho, for about a year and a half. And then my mom had had it with the snow and the cold and and she said, I want to go back to California. Wasn't long there in California for about uh, six years, then up to Bonneville and Leighton, Utah for about four years, then back down to Southern California for four years, and then up here to Palo Alto. So it sounds like you had a fair amount of moving around uh, in those childhood years. Did you find that to be helpful in terms of being able to see a lot of different parts of the country or was that a challenge in terms of making new friends all the time or a little bit of both or you know my best friend was always my identical twin brother so i never suffered from uh, not having more friends the moves were pretty much here in the west i don't regret it at all it gave us a chance to see various experiences and uh, be around uh, uncles and aunts and like 30 cousins in Southern California, first cousins. And uh, that was a good experience. Then come up here. And what did you and your brother enjoy doing as you were growing up? We would play tennis together often. We play tennis with our older brothers. To this day, I love watching tennis for that reason. Learned to uh, play the uh, the piano and uh, uh, that took some time. Enjoyed doing that and uh, love music as a result of that. And then a lot of studies. A lot of studies took our our studies very seriously. As you were growing up, I, you were a member of the church. Yes. So, what was that like, kind of growing up? And were there any particular experiences that you had that you feel like were particularly important in terms of your early faith development or testimony building? Yeah, and to really describe that, I'd have to go back and tell what my father was like and what my mother was like because my testimony foundation really came from them. My father had uh, started smoking when he was six years old and later decided to give that up and come back to the church and it was very difficult for him and so he would tell us the story now and then of how difficult it was to leave tobacco and that addiction. He would tell us about how he prayed that God finally, after failing to give up smoking over and over. He finally went to his bedroom and knelt down and prayed and asked God to take the desire away from him because he couldn't quit unless God took the desire away from him. And he would tell us that from that point on, he never smoked again. And that had a powerful effect on me. He would share stories of his experiences having dreams that turned out to be true uh, with things that would happen years later. He would tell us uh, about blessings that he would give to others that were significant health blessings. He told me about him reading the Book of Mormon and how he would start and flip through the pages and read a little here, read a little there. And then he was all confused and (laughs) didn't know what was going on. And so uh, he finally decided he was cheating and went back and, and read every page and every verse carefully. And then he didn't understand his question marks in the margin that he'd put in there before. And he told us that as he read the Book of Mormon that he would often be moved to tears and cry with joy 
that had an impact on me. He would give health blessings to people that were miraculous. He would sense their real needs. He would read the scriptures every Sunday. In the afternoon, he'd sit at the couch and read the scriptures, and he did that for about two, three months, and soon my brother and I were doing the same. That had a powerful effect on me. Now, my mom, i got to describe her for a minute. My mom is full Italian, blood, never lived in Italy and never visited Italy. But she has that loving, natural warmth about her. To describe my mom, I would say she was the gospel in love, in thought, and in action. She loved everyone, all ages, singles, married, young, old, all nationalities, everyone. And she could go up and just start talking to people. And they would naturally feel her warmth and open up and share and ask her questions. And she would share. And she'd have a wonderful experience. She uh, loved to cook for everyone. She grew up in a restaurant with my grandmother cooking and helping. And so she would cook uh, meals and invite people over all of these different friends that they had. And then she would pray with a simple, deep sincerity for anyone in need. I can tell you one experience that was a testimony builder for me. She sensed that an aunt and uncle who were up in Alaska were short of funds and maybe even short on food to eat. Even though she and my dad didn't have much money and were just eking it by, she felt she should send them. I think it was a $10 bill. She illegally put it in an envelope <laughs> and sent it to them. They wrote her back and said, when we got the $10 bill, we had 50 cents left. That was my mom. I think it's just really affirming of the fact that I think often as parents, we don't realize the profound impact that we're having on our kids just through our everyday actions, right? You know, I mean, it sounds like in your dad's case, he shared certain experiences with you and maybe he did that, but it also just sounds like just in seeing him in action and seeing your mom in action, that that had this very profound impact on you. Absolutely. And my dad would tell us these stories frequently. And the other thing about my mom and dad is they really loved each other and they showed their love in open affection in front of us. And that was healthy for us to see that they loved each other. They would hug each other. They would kiss. It was wonderful. And so as time went on, you worked your way through the primary and youth years uh, after you were done with high school. What came next? Did you go to school? Did you work? Did you do a mission? I should tell that my father gave me a father's blessing when I was, I think, 16 years old. And that was a powerful uh, experience. I felt uh, this immense uh, love and encouragement from Heavenly Father as well as from my father. It was similar to when I had received my patriarchal blessing. That became a pattern for me that I would give our children blessings every year before they started school because my father did it. So we moved from Southern California from our 33 cousins or whatever it was. I have over a hundred first cousins. It was just 33 down in Southern California. And, uh, and so we came up, we came up here to Palo Alto. My dad and mom wanted us to have better education than we were getting down there. I went to Gunn High School with my brother. Uh, it turned out I was I was in all the same classes that he was in. We went to seminary for uh, a couple of years, one in, in Southern California 
and uh, one or two up here, and then we hit the Old Testament. And I wasn't a big fan of the Old Testament. I had started to go to some institute classes, Stanford Institute classes, that my older brother went to. And they were so interesting and engaging. And one was a PhD church historian and various people. And so I went to many of the classes at the Institute and stopped going to the <laughs> seminary class on the Old Testament and loved that. Um, the Institute director said, you are the only two high school students who will graduate from Institute before graduating from seminary. <laughs> so that was a very good experience. It immunized me against many of the challenges that people these days are having on church history matters. Because I heard them, I knew them. It was no surprise to me. I heard them in the right context. Uh, and then I was called on a mission uh, at age uh, 19. Went to Stanford my first year and then called on the mission. Went to Argentina. It was a tough mission. I served in an area that was very, very hot. It was 115 to 122 degrees during the summer. And it had been dry, but they built a reservoir close by. And then it became hot and humid. Not fun. I was there seven months and we had no baptismal success, no activation success. It was just tough. And then I got transferred up north and I had some good experiences, some teaching and so forth, but no baptismal success. And then down to a town called Tucumán. And we taught a man and he was baptized. Three weeks later, he went inactive. The bishop wouldn't give him any home teachers, wouldn't call him as a home teacher, wouldn't give him any assignments or callings. He just went south. And that was a major disappointment to me. And I was called as a zone leader and had had one baptism that went inactive within three weeks. So that had a major impact on me later on that we might discuss. <laughs> it was two years. I ended up going into the mission office as the financial secretary. Enjoyed it. Had seven baptisms while I was there during nine months. Had more baptismal success and enjoyable, fruitful success there than the rest of my mission. And at that point, you came back to, it sounds like you were at Stanford before the mission? Yes. What led you to attend Stanford? Was it just that, the fact that you were there at, in Palo Alto already and you were at Institute and stuff? Or did you actively consider other potential schools to attend? I applied to BYU, was accepted, but we lived two blocks away from Stanford. The oldest brother was attending Stanford. It certainly had a fabulous reputation. Uh, got a California state scholarship that helped. And then while we were gone on our mission, our dad did so well with his business that we couldn't get the scholarship afterwards. <laughs> so we came back. Yes, I came back and went to um, my um, second year at Stanford. Then decided I'd like to go to BYU and do a little wife hunting, do a little dating and wife hunting. And so I met with the counselor and discussed what kind of classes I could take up there that would transfer back down to Stanford without a problem. And uh, got all that arranged, went up to BYU for what was going to be just a summer and had so much fun, ended up staying another semester and then came back and I needed five units left to graduate is all. And it had only been three years. So, uh, but they said 
uh, for your last quarter, you have to take at least 15 units. So I took 15 units and, uh, and, uh, and, and graduated in three years. Uh, my major was anthropology. Why did you pick that as your major? I kind of fell into it accidentally. I thought I might want to go to medical school, but that didn't work out. And uh, so I took an anthropology class and I said, boy, this is interesting. All these ethnic groups and, and their traditions and, and their beliefs, and their art and their language and so forth. And, and uh, I was fascinated with it. So that became my major. And then later on in life, I've traveled and wherever we travel, we go to the ethnic villages. We want to see the people. We want to hear about what their lives are like and their what their customs and traditions and practices are like. And uh, we've gotten involved in trying to help people in in foreign countries as well. So I can tell you about that when you'd like to hear about it. <laughs> and yeah, I'd love to get into that. I guess before we go there, so you mentioned wife hunting. Yes. If I'm remembering right, you and Anne met a little bit later. Yes. Um, so I take it that initial go around wasn't that successful. No. But how long was it until you and Anne connected with one another? Uh, in 1977. So I think that was um, about um, three and a half years later or so. Okay. So what happened in the intervening time frame? Did you go to grad school? I know you're a lawyer kind yeah. of by profession, so... I assume law school was somewhere in the mix there, but yes, since I since the initial wife hunting was not successful, I decided to spend another three years in law school at BYU. I was always in a hurry. I don't know why. I don't think it's such a good idea. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it to young people. But I went the first year of law school at BYU, and and then decided I'll go on summer. And then I'll go the next year, and then I'll do another summer and graduate in two years instead of three years. So that's what I did. And then came back and uh, started practicing law with uh, uh, Richard Hunter and Larry Peterson in uh, San Jose. Met Anne about a year later. I met her through a blind date that my brother Ron and his wife Crystal lined up. They had moved down this way. And that sister-in-law was the state primary chorister, and Anne was a ward primary chorister. And Anne came to the training from the stake. And after the training session, my sister-in-law, Crystal, went up to her and said, uh, are you open to blind dates? And she said, as long as he doesn't have a white cane. Uh, she said, no, 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 no. And uh, she asked, how tall are you? And uh, he said, well, don't wear high heels uh, and we'll line up a blind date. So I ended up meeting Anne through a blind date, even though I had seen her a couple of years before at the Institute building um, while I was practicing the hymns to play for a, for a priesthood during the summer. And that's why I paused a few minutes ago about when I first met her. And how long was it until you were married? And then how long after that was it until you started having children? We first met in, I think it was October, and we were engaged in January, and we were married in March. Okay, it's a pretty quick process. It was pretty quick. And then did kids come along right away, or or was there... 
kind of a time period in between. Kids came right along because Anne was uh, almost 32, and so there was no time a-wasting. And so we had uh, Chad, and then two years later we had Elizabeth, and then 11 and a half months later we had Amy. So we had three children under four, <laughs> and that was quite a challenge for Anne, but she's, she's very, very good at it. Well, so just in a blink of an eye, you go from being single to married and then three kids in the house. So that yeah. must have been quite a transition. It was quite a transition, plus getting law practice up and going at the same time. So that was a challenge. Yeah. How did you kind of navigate all of that and kind of all the stresses that I'm guessing kind of came along with it? As I think about it now, I don't know. <laughs> but on church callings... I tried to do everything on Sunday that I could so that I could be home with Anne and the children in the evenings uh, uh, during the weekdays and was fairly successful at that. I cannot say that I was successful in mentally leaving all the law practice at the law office uh, all the time because some of the matters were very complicated and were stressful. Um, but I did my best. And you were talking earlier about your own parents and the influence that they had on you as you and Anne were being parents yourself. Were there certain things that you tried to focus a lot on or there were certain things that you tried to do either for or with your kids as they were growing up? I remember one of the things that I did was uh, I opened the Book of Mormon with Chad. He was, I think, about 12 years old, maybe 11 at the time. And I said, Chad... Let's read this special message that a king in the Book of Mormon named King Benjamin gave to his people. And I said, this is one of the places where I most felt the Holy Ghost. So let's read it together and let's start with a prayer. So we started with a prayer and we read it and we were about halfway through it. And Chad said to me, I think I feel something different. And so that was learned partly from my experiences with my dad. And if we start bringing some of these threads from earlier together, so uh, you mentioned how when you served your mission in Argentina, at least measured through the metric of baptisms, which is not the really the best metric, I would say, is in terms of the success or failure of a mission. But it sounds like at least at the time you didn't feel that successful maybe as a missionary. But you said that that then had this effect on you much later in life. Where did that come back into play for you? So unfortunately, one of the assistants to the president, when I served my first mission, said, every good missionary baptizes. I don't think that's the right message because you're setting those up who are diligent and faithful and worthy for depression if they don't have baptismal success. There are so many ways to have success during a mission. Um, there's baptisms, there's activation, there's working with new converts, there's uh, supporting the branch award where you work, all those things. And, then, and I became all the more convinced of that after my mission as I was a branch president to the Spanish congregation here in the Los Altos Stake and had wonderful, wonderful experiences there. And so when we went to Chile, I said in my mind, I don't want our missionaries here to have the kind of experience that I had 
during my mission in Argentina. I don't want anyone to be depressed. I want them to feel success, but I want them to understand the breadth of success, and I want them to know how to reach the people's hearts and to help them gain a testimony of Christ and have Christ in their lives. So we went about helping them do that. I think we were quite successful at that uh, at that goal. And as I think back about it, there's very little that I would do different than Anne and I did when we presided over the Chile-Santiago North Mission. You were also talking about some of the more recent work that you've been doing. You were talking about how you really enjoy experiencing these other cultures and places within the world and, and meeting the people there and so on. And and in some cases have gotten involved in supporting those groups of people. Um, so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've been up to in that regard. When we were in Chile and uh, our missionaries would go home, we'd get letters from them and they would say, I can't get a job because I don't have an education. And I can't get an education because I don't have the money to pay for it. And they were in a trap. We decided... And uh, the more we heard about that, I was I was talking with a with a member of a stake presidency who became a friend, uh, and he said, "I know someone who's been thinking about this for some time," and I talked with that person who was the president of the MTC down in Chile, and he said, "Why not do loans to these missionaries so that they can get their education?" and then they can get good jobs. And so we went to the bank, a city bank in Chile. We had a friend who was an executive and he was a member of the church down in Santiago, Chile. He introduced me and I told him what the vision was that we wanted to do, but we wanted these young people to take the loans so that they had some responsibility in it, that we would deposit monies at the bank to guarantee that they would make the payments. We didn't want the students to know that, but we would assure the bank so that they wouldn't lose any money. Well, finally the bank uh, consented, and that's what was done. And that became, uh, we called it, the Perpetual Education Foundation. And the church tracked us. They put in a little bit money, a little bit of money. We had past mission presents who put in money and other friends who put in money, including my parents. Uh, ultimately, the church took it over, and it became known as the Perpetual Education Fund. And then it was actually an item on the donation slip of the church for a number of years, and they raised substantial monies uh, that were used to help missionaries around the world. On the average, 10,000 missionaries a year. Uh, so that was one thing. The other thing was... And I concluded that the missionary, return missionaries needed three things to be successful and to be able to continue to contribute to the church while they had families. They needed a good education. They needed a vocation, a successful vocation, and they needed English. If they had English, the jobs would open up for many of them and they would get better jobs, better salaries, and all of that. We even decided that we wanted to try to help them get computer skills, Microsoft Word skills. And so we, we worked on that. We got a number of computers down there. I think we got oh, about 50 computers down in the Institute buildings. 
and we got people who had skills in Microsoft Word and PowerPoint and so forth, and they taught the other returned missionaries. We persuaded the area presidency to send a letter to all the returned missionaries in those areas and invite them to participate, and that worked very well. Then we started what we called companionship language study to help teach the foreign missionaries English skills while they were on the missions. So the North Americans would help teach those English skills to them as part of their language development. And the natives would help teach Spanish or Portuguese or whatever it was to the North Americans. So it was a trade back and forth. That ended up helping approximately 100,000 missionaries in the field learn English and certify their skills with ACTFL, one of the best certifying institutions in the world for English. I guess just one last question that I have for you is, you know, we were talking before about your early kind of faith development, you know, since then as an adult, you were talking a little bit about your mission, meeting your wife, starting a family, you know, a number of church callings kind of along the way, some of these more recent, uh, both missionary and other types of activities that you've been involved in. Over that period of time, how would you say that your faith has developed and and what are some of the key tenets of that at at this point for you? Or, or, you know, how would you describe the, the, the difference that the gospel's made in your life? While I was a branch president of the Spanish branch, I saw wonderful things happen. There were times when a parent would call me and say, my daughter is in trouble. She thinks she did something wrong. She's going to call you. And if you tell her that what she did was wrong, and it was clearly wrong, she's going to commit suicide. So please don't tell her that she did wrong. And I said, wow, okay, all right. So uh, 10 minutes later, I received the call from the daughter asking to meet with me that night. And I uh, came home from work later and came and told Anne that I needed to talk with someone. I needed some time to pray first. So I went in the bedroom and knelt down and prayed. And my whole mental and emotional frame was, help, I don't know what to do. And immediately the answer came, you don't have to tell her she did wrong. And I said, I can't tell her that she did what was right. And then the Lord said, but you don't have to tell her that she did wrong. I thought, oh, I think I get it. I tell her she's gonna have to find out for herself. And then the Spirit said to me, that's right. And if she can get close enough to find out that she did wrong, she's close enough for me to forgive her and give her peace. I said, okay, I'll do that. Then the doorbell rings. And it's her. So I come downstairs. I go into the office. And there's a desk there. I'm seated on one side. She's seated on the other side. And she starts to tell me what happened. She says, I think I did wrong. Uh, tell me, did I do what's right or wrong? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. And she said, what? You're my priesthood leader. You're my branch president. You have to tell me. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to find out for yourself. Let me tell you how you'll find out. You kneel down and pray, and you tell God what you did. And as you tell him, if you feel good, then it's okay. If you feel horrible, then you know that it was wrong. And then you think about Christ and what he did for you. 
and you ask for forgiveness, you acknowledge that it was wrong. And I said, now let's go over that one more time. So we went over it all one more time so that she would have it clear. And she'd also have it clear that if she felt horrible, that she needed to think about Christ, ask for forgiveness, ask for peace, and, and so that she wouldn't just be left feeling horrible. And I said, okay, I'm gonna go out, I'll close the door, and you'll have as much time as you want. You kneel right here against the sofa here. And then when you're done, you just open the door and I'll come in. So about 15 minutes later, she opened the door and I came in and I sat down. She sat down on the other side of the desk. I said, what happened? She said, exactly what you said would happen. I started to pray and I felt horrible. I knew I had done wrong. So I thought about Christ and I asked for forgiveness. And I started feeling peace. That's enough of that story. That was a very powerful experience for me in which God told me just what to do. And I learned from that experience in part that if you want an answer to prayer, you have to be totally sincere with Heavenly Father. If it's help, I don't know what to do. That's just what you say. If you're sad, you tell him I'm sad. If you're sad and you don't know why, you say, I'm very sad. Please help me know why. And I've done that and found out why I was sad. I think that that's just a, a wonderful example and I think just emblematic of just a, a depth of experience that you've had over the course of many different types of experiences in terms of knowing and having confidence that you can go to the Lord, go to the Lord and be sincere, be who you are, right? You know, be transparent in that way and that, that you're going to be accepted maybe corrected in the process and you know I mean sometimes repentance is not easy but it's always available and it's always possible and I think that's a really profound and important thing for us to all remember I think if if, if that's the only thing that we only that we ever remember I think we're probably doing really well for ourselves so I will mention one other thing I know some people have had difficulty with some church history matters or with some church position matters and so forth. I'd like to say that I have had some experience with that. And my experience is having friends or family who have been very troubled. And consequently, I've gone to study some of the matters that they found troubling. I do not recommend that to anyone because it requires two key elements. It requires a very skeptical mind so that you can challenge the assumptions that are being made in the challenge. And it also requires a lot of time to study it out. And I'll give just one example. Some have had a problem with the book of Abraham, saying the book of Abraham is not authentic, and that the papyri that Joseph Smith used to translate what is now the book of Abraham, that it uh, has been found, that Egyptologists have, have uh, looked it over and said it has nothing to do with Abraham. That is what was on the internet, along with a number of other challenges. I uh, opened up the internet, held my nose, and uh, jotted down all of the challenges associated with the book of Abraham. And then I went to work studying it out. What I learned to begin with was that the papyri that had been discovered was the fragments of facsimile number one, and that was it. It wasn't the papyri that Joseph Smith said 
was used to prepare the Book of Abraham. Instead, that came from the big roll that had been donated years later to the uh, Museum of Chicago, and it had all burned down in the Chicago fire. So the challenge that had been given was making certain assumptions and statements that were just false. And if you had a good skeptical mind, you'd challenge those things and you'd find out that they were false. And then there were a number of other things as well. And I researched those others. It took me nine months to research. And in the end, I felt like I had not only found the evidence that would allow an openness that the book of Abraham could be authentic, but 80% or 90% had proven that it was authentic and that Joseph Smith could not have known the things that are contained in the book of Abraham, but for revelation. So I did that with the book of Abraham, like I say, nine months of very careful study with an attorney litigator's skeptical mind, but I don't recommend it to anyone to do that because most don't have that kind of a skeptical mind and they don't have the time to research it out carefully. So I would say, hold to what you know to be true. Don't give that up. And with respect to your doubts, doubt your doubts and consider that probably there are assumptions that are being made there or statements that are being made there that are not true. And in the end, the Holy Ghost will be your best friend and companion will bring you peace and happiness in this life and eternal life in the next. Well, Vaughn, thank you so much for sitting down today. I feel like we've only scratched the surface in so many ways in terms of a very uh, rich life that you've lived and all of the experience that you've had, but hopefully it gives people just a small sense of that and then also a reason to come say hello and, and maybe have a deeper conversation with you on any number of topics. So thank you again for, for being a part of this and also just being such an important part of our Ward family in general.